Uh, if you have Bibles, you can go ahead and make your way to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, uh, page 559, if you're using one of the black hardcover Bibles that are under the seats there. Um, as you're flipping there, let me actually start this morning. I want to start by apologizing for a comment uh, that I made last week. So last week, uh, as I was uh, joking about the number of kids that have been, um, been added to our midst in this church over the past years, really, uh, I made a, um, an off-the-cuff comment um, that our nursery volunteers had been studying and considering Chinese law about how to limit the size of families. Um, so that comment, um, like I said, was off the cuff. It really was offensive. It really was an offensive comment, um, and it was really not called for. And uh, someone in our church very graciously, uh, very boldly, uh, had the courage to come and speak to me about that after the service last week uh, and to reflect the reality that, that it really is tragic there, um, that for many uh, thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of Chinese people, that, that's, a, that's a tragedy, uh, that there are no, there's generations of people with no brothers and sisters, uh, there's generations of people uh, with no aunts and uncles. Um, and so my comment there um, was, as I mentioned, off the cuff, not thoughtful, not thought through. Uh, and so I, I just want to ask for your forgiveness in that this morning. Uh, I'm truly sorry for that. And as I've been reflecting on that this week, I even had a chance to talk to somebody about this this morning. Um, every time that I'm confronted with, or we as a church staff and elders are confronted with logistical complexities about what it looks like to care for a massive number of kids, uh, I always want to be grateful in that moment um, for how much infinitely better that is than any of the alternatives, uh, how grateful we are that we get to live in this country where there are no laws imposed like that. Um, that's really a gift that's easy for me and others to take for granted. So um, maybe that didn't offend you. It, it, it should have probably, um, but I apologize to all of you uh, for that. I want to be more thoughtful uh, as a pastor and, and leader uh, in your midst. So thank you for, for hearing me on that. Um, Ecclesiastes 12 is where we find ourselves this morning. We have uh, at long last reached the end of Ecclesiastes. That is a sentiment, I think, shared by many uh, in the room this morning. Um, the conclusion of the quest, and then also the ultimate conclusion that lies beyond the conclusion of the quest. So I'm just going to dive right into that, and we'll make our way through this last chapter of Ecclesiastes. Uh, I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, uh, beginning in verse 1. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few. And those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird. And all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms. The grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. 
Verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. Our blessed Lord, who caused all of Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant to us this morning that we might hear and read and mark and learn and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Four things uh, for us to consider here at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. The bottom, the bedrock, the beginning, and then beyond. So first, the bottom. The bottom. Chapter 12 uh, picks up where we left off at the end of chapter 11, if you were with us last week. Talking about the vanity of youth. The vanity of youth. As we saw last week, we are neither to idolize nor to demonize youth, but we are to rejoice in youth Redemptively, It's a season that is beautiful in its time. We're not to put, uh, essential to that as we read here at the beginning of 12 is that we are to remember in the days of our youth, our creator. That we're not to put off faith. We're not to put off the things of God as many throughout the centuries have been inclined to do uh, until the days of old age. But we are to use the days of our youth and live all of our, the days of our youth with God at the forefront of our mind. Koholeth, this preacher king here, goes on to describe the years of aging, the evil days, uh, as he refers to them here, with a series of metaphors. So aging is like the chill of winter. It's darkened. It's cloudy. Uh, Physical body parts and human faculties fail. And so he rapidly rattles off a number of these allegorically here at the beginning of chapter 12. So our arms and our hands, uh, they are like keepers of the house that they now tremble Legs or backs are are like strong men who are now bent. They used to stand up strong and straight, now they're bent. Teeth are like grinders that cease because they decay and they start to fall out. Uh, Eyes are like windows that grow dim. Ears are like doors that shut. Uh, The voice, the ear, the lungs, all the different organs that are involved in both making and receiving song. It says the daughter of song are, are brought low. And actually, if you look at this, the only thing throughout these metaphors here, the only thing that's blossoming, the only thing that's growing is the almond tree. Because the appearance of an almond tree, when it blossoms, goes from this dark color of winter to this pale blossom in spring. It's a picture of hair. And what happens to hair in our old age? Well, it blossoms white. So the one thing blossoming in the midst of everything else decaying and declining is the almond tree. It's our white hair, gray hair. In addition... It says, age brings early wakefulness. So the simple sound, the slightest peep from a bird wakes you up. Different kinds of fears, different kinds of terrors, maybe things you were never afraid of earlier in your youth now begin to take hold. 
Uh, it says the spring is gone from our step, just like a grasshopper that no longer can jump from place to place but is dragging itself along. And it says their desire fails. Uh, the word there for desire in Hebrew is the same word for caperberry, which was widely known in that culture as an aphrodisiac. So this is a, 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 a statement that's saying the libido decreases in old age as well. There are also here a few images of water spilling or drying up. Uh, and across civilizations and generations, water has been this universal symbol for life. And so when the golden bowl is broken, when the pitcher is shattered, they're unable to hold water. They're unable to hold life anymore. It says the wheel is broken at the cistern. It renders the well useless. It can no longer draw well from the water, or water from the well. The silver cord that he mentions here is almost certainly uh, Koheleth's attempt to describe this precious and fragile bond between our physical bodies and our soul. And it says, in the day of our death, that silver cord snaps, that we go to our eternal home. And lest we get too excited about this statement here, don't read more into this than what Koholeth is saying here. All he's saying here, as he proceeds to explain in the couple verses after this, is that our bodies return to the dust. And that the spirit, the immaterial part of us, that God gave us returns back to God. So he's saying here, it's now the end of our turn on this merry-go-round of life. We've gone around, we've done our time, and now the physical part of us returns to the earth and the spiritual part of us returns to God. And therefore, verse 8, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Now this is the bookend of the quest that takes up the vast majority of this entire book. Back at the start, uh, the second verse of the entire book of Ecclesiastes, it said exactly the same thing as verse 8 here in chapter 12. And in between that, in between that second verse and this verse here, everything there has led, uh, has described what led him to that conclusion. But if it shocked us when he said that at the beginning of the book, when he stated it up front, after reading this book, after journeying with Koholeth through all of these things, who would disagree with him now? Who would disagree? Remember how much that we have sought out over these past few months together in studying this book. How much we've explored with Koheleth these different things in life which we look to, which he looked to for meaning and for satisfaction. As one author summarizes it, we've pursued wisdom. We've pursued philosophy to fill our mind. We've pursued pleasure or hedonism to fill our bodies. We've pursued wealth and power or materialism to fill our pocket, to fill our ego. We've pursued duty and altruism and social service and honor. We've pursued ethics, in other words, to fill our conscience. And we've even pursued piety, religion, religious activity to fill our spirit. And at each and every turn, we have come up empty. We've continued to grasp for these things as if they are solid substance, and we found each in turn to be smoke that fades through our fingers as we try to grasp it. So we may have wanted to challenge his conclusion up front when we heard it. We may have thought him to be cynical and not fair. But by this point, if we've really given ourselves to this book, if we've really labored with him in this quest, we've been now ground down into cynicism and despair and really resignation. We're resigned when we reach this point in the book all is vanity. He's right. So maybe, perhaps, 
the purpose of all of this, the purpose of the book, has been the journey itself. This is a very modern idea that we hear echoed in our own day. Uh, The author and philosopher Albert Camus, for example, uh, referenced the myth of Sisyphus on his tombstone. Uh, If you're not familiar with it, in Greek mythology, Sisyphus uh, was the king of Corinth, and he was condemned in the afterlife to roll this huge boulder up a large hill, And by the time he reached the top, the boulder would then roll back down and he would have to repeat this over and over again. That was his punishment in the afterlife. And so Camus in this somehow imagined Sisyphus to be be happy and to be fulfilled. And so on his tombstone, Camus had written, the struggle toward the summit itself suffices to fill a man's heart. The struggle toward the summit itself suffices to fill a man's heart. Does it? Does it? Think about this. With all that he's pursued and with all that he's laid hold of, with all the searching, with all the struggling that he's done, does this preacher king seem like someone whose heart is now filled at the end of this book? So men and women, it is not. Resist this lie when you hear it in our culture. It is not ultimately about the journey. Even if that does suffice to fill your heart, what a tragic reality that is. Because the only way to conclude that is to suppress and harden your heart to the eternity that's been written on it. For 12 chapters, this quest has progressed to this point. Why has it done that? It's done that in order to thoroughly convince us of the vanity of everything else apart from the existence and the centrality of God. As Sinclair Ferguson puts it, painful and embarrassing though it may be, you need to vomit out of your soul everything that is destroying your life and will eventually lead you to an endless emptiness. In other words, the book of Ecclesiastes in our Bible is like Scripture's version of Epicac. It's like Scripture's version of Epicac. It's a short book. Just like the syrup of Epicac, it does not take much. But if you lean into the wisdom here, it will be utterly effective in making you hit the bottom and vomit out of your soul everything that would destroy your life, everything that would leave, that would lead to endless emptiness. And so then, and only then, as we hit the bottom, do we find ourselves ready to find the bedrock beneath it. So second, let's talk about that. Though the quest itself here concludes with this cry, this bookend, all is vanity, it's not the ultimate conclusion, as you heard, of the book itself. And instead, here in verses 13 and 14, there's this further ultimate conclusion. It says this, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. He teased this part about God's judgment at the end of chapter 11. Um, We looked at that a little bit last week, but, but think about this. It changes things if we have to give an account of our lives to someone else. And how much more is that true if the one we give an account of our lives to is the God who created us? And this is what Koholeth is convinced of, that we will give an account to God for the things that we do and for the things that we say and for the things that we think. Centuries after this, Jesus is going to affirm that it's not just our actions, but that it's every careless word that we speak that we will have to give an account for. And then later on from that, the author of Hebrews will write that it's not only the words and the actions of our lives, but it's even the thoughts and intentions of our hearts 
that the word of God exposes those and lays those bare and we give an account to God for those as well. And so in our modern sensibilities, we cringe at this idea. We think of all the ways, which sadly is true, that the notion of God's judgment has been used in the history of the church uh, for emotional manipulation, for behavior modification. And we cringe at that. But think about this. For someone who's embarked on this comprehensive quest and who has found life to be vain and worthless, imagine the seed of hope that it would sow to know that what we do matters to God. That if God is going to bring every deed, every action, every thought into judgment, it means that God cares. It means that our actions are of consequence. It means, as it says here at the end of the book, that there is a good and there is an evil. There's some kind of objective standard that isn't just based on what a society feels like at any given moment. It means that there must be some objective purpose and meaning to life because if not, there would be no need for God to judge. So how much worse would it be, how hopeless would life be if our lives were of so little value that God didn't care? His conclusion here, unsettling still as it is, is that God does care. That what we do does matter because God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So when everything else is stripped away, what's left for us is the bedrock of the existence of God. The bedrock of the existence of God. God is either there or he's not there. He's either there, and therefore life has great meaning because life has been created and purpose has been imparted to it. Or he's not there, and therefore we agree completely with Kohalet's conclusion. Life and all his pursuits are vanity. A chasing after the wind, a trip around the merry-go-round, and then a return to the dust. There are many people who live their lives as if the existence of God is inconsequential. Maybe God's there, maybe he's not. Some people who live this way call themselves Christians. Some people who live this way do not call themselves Christians. Either way, be thoroughly convinced from the book of Ecclesiastes, this is no way to live your life. That it would actually be better to try to convince yourself that God doesn't exist and to cope with that rather than to live as if the existence of God is inconsequential. Because at least if you try to convince yourself that God is not there, that God does not exist, at least you're closer to the truth. You're at least considering the the magnitude of the ripple effects that result in light of that. So for example, consider these words from Jean-Paul Sartre, who said, God does not exist, and we have to face all the consequences of this. He goes on to say, the existentialist thinks it very distressing that God does not exist, because all possibility of finding values in a heaven of ideas disappears with him. He's closer to the truth than any of us who would live our lives as if the existence of God is inconsequential. He's closer to the truth because he sees the ripple effects if God doesn't exist. And you and I will either build our lives on the bedrock of the existence of God, or we will perpetually try to build it on his non-existence. Amid all of the complexities of the, and the smoke of life under the sun, This is some clarity that we desperately need, that we're either going to build our life on the the existence of God or on his non-existence. That's not simple. It's not a soft and cuddly reality. 
and it's not meant to be, it really is meant to be bedrock, strong enough to hold and to support this immense weight of life that's going to press down upon it. Strong enough to stand up when the aftershocks, the, the aftershocks and the ripple effects of sin shake everything to its core. That's what we're meant to hit here at the bottom, beyond the bottom of the book of Ecclesiastes. And several months back when we began this series, I shared my hopes for some of what God might do through our time together in this book. Uh, for those of you who are Christians, what I said to you is that my prayer is that this book would lead to a greater integrity, a greater consistency, a greater depth in your pursuit of God. Because if God really exists and if all this other stuff has been stripped away, what difference does that actually make in your life? Why do you as a Christian do the things that you do? Is it because you're supposed to? It's because in your Christian circles you've kind of always done it that way? Or does, does your life actually line up consistently with the reality of God? Do you, do you live your life, even as a Christian, as one who tries to make God part of your life? Or do you truly live your life as if your life is part of God's and part of the story and the work of God that is so much greater? For those of you who aren't Christians, uh, who have been exploring and who've been considering what it is that you believe, my prayer for you as we've been in this book is that this, this honest and raw look at life and the vanity of pursuits would thoroughly convince you that God is present, that God is powerful, uh, and that God's existence would no longer seem tangential for you. It would really seem critical to your life and the way you perceive all of life. And that you would then choose to build your life now, as we reach the end of this book, on that bedrock of the existence of God rather than the quicksand of everything else. In addition to the reality of God's judgment, there's a second really important warning that Koholeth gives here as he reaches the end of the book. He says there in verse 10, Of the making of many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. Now we know who he is. We know his pursuits here. So this is in no way anti-intellectualism. It's in no way a commendation of a willful ignorance or a passivity in studying questions about life and learning all that we can learn. It is, however, a warning that in the face of all of the questions that we do have about our lives, we will eventually have to get off the fence. You will eventually have to get off the fence. It's a warning that behind much of what passes as perpetual searching in our day is actually underneath a refusal to find answers where answers can be found. In Derek Kidner's book that we've been using in Bible studies this fall, he references this really distressing scene, powerful scene, in a book by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. And in this scene, there's a man who has been a searcher his entire life. And he's invited, he's at the gates of heaven, he's invited to come in. And at the gates of heaven, he's told that there in heaven he will find, quote, no atmosphere of inquiry. Here you will find no atmosphere of inquiry. Why not? Because he will be brought, it says, to the land not of questions, but of answers. And it goes on to say, and you will see the face of God. But instead of accepting this, this lifelong searcher remembers an appointment that he's forgotten. And he apologizes for needing to hurry off. And C.S. Lewis writes, hurries off to a discussion group that he's having in hell. Now don't press that for like theological accuracy and miss the point, okay? The point is, you must be willing to receive an answer where there is an answer to be found. 
By all means, ask the question. Seek out the meaning and the purpose of life. But when you find the answer, will you receive it? Will you receive it? Third, after we hit this bedrock, it's the beginning. So third, the beginning. The end of the matter for Ecclesiastes, it's certainly a conclusion. Uh, It's a moment to catch your breath. It's a moment of rest after what's been an exhausting quest. But it is, in a very real sense, the beginning. G.K. Chesterton once wrote, The fear of the Lord, that is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end. That is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end. So if, as Koheleth says here, it's the whole duty of man to fear God, to keep his commandments, then this is a, a whole life pursuit. It's an entirety of life pursuit. You will never arrive under the sun, this side of heaven. Once we hit the bedrock of the existence of God, the rest of our lives are spent seeking how to understand that, how to live out all of the implications of that. Our life now becomes about dealing with this truth. So think of it this way. The end of Ecclesiastes is really a summary of the rest of the Old Testament. So there are 38 other books in the Old Testament that unpack and detail what it looks like to fear God and to keep his commandments. There are texts which detail God's heart of mercy, that he desires that none should perish. There are texts that detail God's judgment, that he will not allow the fall of sin, the corruption of sin, to have the final word over his good creation. And this is similar in a lot of ways how in the New Testament, Jesus said that all the law and the prophets are fully summarized in the commands, love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And there are some who mistakenly use that summary in a reductionistic, simplistic kind of way. As if all of the rest that's been revealed and that's been written down in Scripture for us is now irrelevant. But it's exactly the opposite of that. The rest of what's been revealed, the rest of what's been written down, explain and they flesh out the summary. So the summaries are a gift from God. It's so helpful to have a summary. It provides this concise clarity that we can remember and be renewed in and rehearse over and over again so that we never miss the forest for the trees. But God has been kind enough to reveal a whole lot more than that. And long before the days of the New Testament and this further revelation of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ, The author of Ecclesiastes here has access to much more than just this summary at the end of this book. And he alludes to some of it here as he wraps this book up. There are, he says in verse 9, proverbs, some of which he arranged and compiled and wrote himself. There are, verse 11, wise words like goads and like nails firmly fixed. Uh, Goads were these long, pointed sticks that were used for prodding and for guiding livestock to keep them on the right path. Nails firmly fixed, that's a picture of stability, something that holds fast and is secure. So ultimately, whoever the human author is, these, these words of wisdom, these proverbs, come from one shepherd. They come from, it says there, one shepherd, the voice of God himself. So what we do matters, he will judge, and so he reveals the path to faithfulness. He reveals the best way to live in accordance with his good design instead of against the grain of it. Not that this is going to leave us with every question answered. Far from that. And if if Ecclesiastes has convinced you of nothing else, I'm sure it's convinced you of that. But let this book of Ecclesiastes, for you, be both a death and a birth. 
Let it be for each of us both a death and a birth. Let it be a death to our self-centered quest to create meaning for our lives. Let us be thoroughly convinced that the whole duty of human existence is to fear God and to keep his commandments. And in turn then, let the book of Ecclesiastes for us be a birth or a rebirth of our pursuit to know him, of our pursuit to be known by him, of our pursuit to hide God's word in our heart, to seek him while he may be found, to press on to know him, to read and understand and study scripture as much as we are able, to commune with God in prayer. After we vomit out everything else that leads to destruction and emptiness, may we fill our mouths, may we fill our stomach, as the prophet Isaiah puts it, with a feast of rich food that will truly satisfy. So lastly, let's talk about life beyond the sun. Life beyond the sun. Throughout Ecclesiastes, we have heard this refrain over and again, under the sun. Life under the sun. Ecclesiastes 1, there is nothing new under the sun. Everything that is done under the sun is vanity and a striving after wind. Ecclesiastes 2, there is nothing to be gained under the sun. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. Ecclesiastes 3, moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Ecclesiastes 4, again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Better is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Again I saw the vanity under the sun. Ecclesiastes 5, there is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Ecclesiastes 6, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. Who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Ecclesiastes 9, this is, an e- this is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event, namely death, happens to all. Again, I saw that under the sun, time and chance happen to them all. Ecclesiastes 10, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun. So indeed, this is life under the sun. This is the futility and the injustice and the corruption that characterizes our existence because of the fall into sin. But, though there is nothing new under the sun, God is one who, if he exists at all, lives and reigns beyond the sun and does not remain distant in that place beyond the sun, but enters in through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The incarnation the resurrection of the dead, the reconciliation of all things, as these things are progressively revealed through the holy word of God in the centuries that follow, these become things that are new under the sun because they have come from beyond it. So it has been no mistake that as we wrap up this series in Ecclesiastes, we find ourselves on the doorstep of Advent. After being broken down to bedrock, there is no better way to build Uh, There is no better way to rebuild than with the hope of Emmanuel. That God not only exists, but that he is God with us. That he has entered into what would otherwise be empty, what would otherwise be futile, and he has forever through his life, death, and resurrection testified to the deeply imparted purpose of human life. That in Christ, there is held out to you 
And there is held out to me infinitely more than the prospect of judgment. But there is the prospect of judgment from this distant, distant, impersonal being. But there is held out to you and me instead the inexhaustible well of salvation from an immensely relational God who came. The more that we have joined Koholeth on this quest, I promise you the sweeter the celebration of Advent will be. As the Christmas carol, Little Town of Bethlehem puts it, the hopes and the fears of all the years are met in him, are met in the one who comes and is born among us. Or even more succinctly, I love how Peter Kreeft puts it. He says this, Ecclesiastes is the question to which Jesus Christ is the answer. Ecclesiastes is the question to which Christ is the answer. And so I hope, strange as this may sound, I hope Ecclesiastes has troubled you. I hope it has provoked you. I hope it has unsettled you. And I hope that in all of that, it has stripped away all of the cliches and all of the pretense and all of the pleasantries of what you and I are prone to mistakenly call faith, but is really fluff. And now, now, let your weary soul rejoice. Let your weary soul rejoice in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. From beyond the sun, audacious as this is, from beyond the sun, the eternal word has come. Not only to save us from the guilt and the power of sin, but from the futility of sin. He has become flesh and he has dwelt among us. And so through the smoke, may we see, may you see his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. May you see through the smoke of the vanity of this life, especially as we enter into Advent, the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. Amen. We pray for us. Oh, we are grateful to you, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, our King, that you entered into this world that you rescue us from the vanity, from the futility of it all, that there is something beyond the sun, but that you don't remain distant from us there, but that you enter in. Our hopes, our fears, our longings would go unmet, would crush us if this were not true. And so I pray that you would use this book of your Holy Scripture this good word that you have revealed for our gain, for our profit, that it would be for us the epicac, the, the, the catalyst to vomit out all that would lead to destruction, all that would lead to futility in our lives, that we would hit the bottom, that we would find the bedrock of your existence beyond that, that we would build our lives on that bedrock from here till the day that we meet you, and that we would rejoice constantly, but especially now as we come to this table, that you have come into this world from beyond the sun to rescue us from it. All glory to you, Jesus Christ. Meet us by your spirit now as we come. We pray this in your name. Amen.